Hello, and welcome to the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm Reading Group of General Intellect Unit. Uh, this time we are finishing off Chapter 17, uh, Externalities, is the section we have got to, uh, page 307. As time wore on throughout 1972, Chile developed into a siege economy. How ironic it was that so many eyes were focused with goodwill on the Chilean experiment in all parts of the world, while governments and other agencies, supposedly representing those liberal-minded observers, resisted its maturation with implacable hostility. The nation's life support system was in a stranglehold, from financial credit to vital supplies. Its metabolism was frustrated, from the withholding of spare parts to software and expertise, literally and metaphorically. The well-to-do were eating rather than investing their seed corn, with encouragement from the outside. Even more ironic, looking back, is the fact that every advance Allende made, every success in the eyes of the mass of the people, which brought it with more electoral or sorry, which brought with it more electoral support made it less likely that the Chilean experiment would be allowed to continue, because it became more threatening to Western ideology. Central to this economic plight, which, see Chapter 16, had been forecast, was the question of foreign exchange. As mentioned, foreign earnings hinged on copper exports, and we were to see the spectacle of the phantom ship full of copper that traipsed around European ports looking for permission to unload. It was said that the Chilean government had refused compensation in taking over the copper industry. In reality, it had tabled the totals of foreign capital invested together with the revenues taken out of the country and had raised the question as to who should be compensating whom. Whatever the rights and wrongs of this copper problem, however, the intention formed by the national plan to invest most available foreign income in the copper industry appeared absurd. Not only was such a strategy politically vulnerable, as we already knew, it made no economic sense either. This was where the Checo simulations, however unreliable, had their impact. What they certainly did convey was that the rate at which an economy under such pressure was likely to change compared with the rate at which investment in the copper industry could conceivably pay off. Here was a dilemma indeed. From the point of view of responsible Chileans, it would have been outrageous not to invest the maximum of foreign exchange in copper. Was not the failure of U.S. ownership cited in exactly these terms? Nationalization had been a recognition not only of the economic exploitation of the outstanding national resource, but of a decade of neglect and investment that would have a catastrophic effect in the longer term. Selective mining, inadequate maintenance, the failure to reshape the development of the resource had led to disastrous outcomes already. These were the specifics of the indictment of the foreign ownership. Looking back, a member of the core group immediately reeled off different explicit examples from five different copper sites, adding the cybernetic point that investment in copper since it produced the maximum surplus in foreign exchange, provided positive feedback and not simply exchange to the Chilean economy. Even so, what was said in the last paragraph had its own validity at the time. The story reflects a perfectly general political double-bind. 
of what avail is long-term planning conducted in absolute dispassion and disinterest for the sake of a future generation if survival in the short term is thereby surrendered and that future is consequently barren? Alternatively, of what avail to the future generation is an inheritance of the denial of its interests in favor of the earlier survival that made its very existence possible? Somehow, the whole dilemma was summed up in the fact that when Angel Parra wrote a haunting song called El Barque Fantasmo about the ghost ship carrying copper which no one would unload, and when Eliende approved it to the extent that he wished to take disc pressings as gifts to the members of the United Nations he was shortly to address, the president was thwarted. The record pressing company was on strike. All right, any comments about this? Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So I think this really gets at the heart of the dumb PragerU argument, socialism has failed wherever it was tried. Like, you know, the power that capital, global capital has to bear on shutting down any experiment that provides an alternative is just illustrated here. The, uh, um, the more successful the project was, the more doomed it was. And I think as we get further in the book, especially in chapter 20, Beer's going to rack his brains to try and come up with some way to withstand the onslaught that capital unleashes on its dissidents at the national level. Right. Yeah. Um, Sheen, go ahead. Yeah, the, um, the, the bit at the top here, which is I think this I think we've kind of come across a couple of times where you know, it's like Beer's surprised the capital lashes out in this kind of way, and, and we're we're not surprised at all. Um, but I think something that just came to mind there is that, like, in, in this time frame, 1971, like, I mean, yeah, you had plenty of evidence for them, uh, the Yanks, especially fucking around in Latin America. But this this is just before the the end of the mid-century uh, labor compromise or the the class compromise, and this this is immediately before the like restoration of of capital as the, the full, the full sort of decider of everything. So, um, be, being, you know, putting, putting oneself in Beer's shoes to imagine like, you know, kind of growing up in England in a fairly sort of affluent sort of place and this sort of the labor compromise being kind of baked into the way you think about the world and then being maybe a little bit surprised about this, this, the, the, the especially craven and vicious way that the, the U S uh, reacts to, um, to this stuff is you know, maybe a little bit more understandable. Um, I think the later comment about like, um, uh, the sort of underdevelopment of the nationalized copper resources is interesting, right? That like you can you can take all the stuff away from the capitalists, but what they leave you is a patchwork hodgepodge of fucking underdeveloped or partially developed nonsense. Like when you when you go and look, it's like oh wow, this is this is actually not very well run at all. Um, I thought that that was kind of interesting, right? That like what's the line here? That nationalization had been a recognition not only of the economic exploitation, but of a decade of neglect and investment. That would have catastrophic long-term effects. So what they took over was like, you know, it's 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 I don't know. It, it, we we think of like, oh well, you know, the, the capitalists have all the good shit, so we should just go and take it, and then we'll have the good shit. But then you go you get there, and it's like, well, this is a hammer with like two. It's a cl got claws on both ends or whatever. It's just all very weirdly underdeveloped and anemic. Um, it's really good at generating surplus value, but it's like maybe the machinery of capital isn't actually all that great at doing the thing you wanted to do, perhaps. Yeah, um, 
definitely it's interesting because there is a kind of uh asynchronicity where the best vintages of machinery um and means of production are going to be introduced at the start of major capital accumulation in a country uh when they can basically just copy and and steal from whoever is the market leader um and and just introduce the newest vintages of stuff but that tends to also imply that the proletariat is going to lag behind that in its growth and strength um so that when the proletariat actually does have a significant amount of power as a result of capitalist development the uh, means of production may already be uh, behind the times uh, or likely will already be behind the times because of, uh, you know, capitalist development happening or moving to another place in the being in the process of moving to another place. Uh, so that is a definite problem because, yeah, I mean, it runs uh, the, the, the fact that uh, capitalist investment is moving elsewhere can develop some degree of cross-class uh, consensus around nationalization or a national development program. I, I, I would say it's very contingent on a lot of different factors because mm -hmm. the so-called national bourgeoisie uh, may actually not give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but in some places like chile or uh or cuba uh that was a significant factor in pushing the revolution forward was uh underdevelopment uh of industry mm -hmm. uh, according to colonial relations um maybe there's something kind of like um i mean for the contemporary moment right like i mean even if like i don't know even if the Jacobin people got exactly what they wanted and Bernie took over the whole fucking place and like, oh, national. Oh, didn't everything. you hear Biden? Biden is, is the new guy. He's, 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 is he the new he's guy? changed tack. Oh, he's he's, the one all the he's already on making massive, massive announcements about government spending. It's, 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 it's sunshine and lollipops, people. <laughs> we we actually won. This is amazing. We didn't yeah. lose at all. We actually won. Um, but even if you, even if you, even if you do that, you nationalize everything in America. What do you actually get? You get a decrepit, crumbling fucking infrastructure. All the good tech is in China. You know what I mean? Yes. yes. All the all, all the all the best stuff is is overseas, right? Um, you get the the fucking broken roads and the the the, the sewer pipes that don't go don't go anywhere if you nationalize everything in, in the states. Um, shrug. You know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, okay, so let's let's move on here. Uh, I think we'll go Matt, Jake, and then Boast. Yeah, like, it, 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 it is interesting, like question, especially for for, for resources. You know, I'm just thinking about like uh, you know Venezuela versus Saudi Arabia, where where, where like uh, uh, you know um uh, um uh, I think there you know the, the argument that there was like some mismanagement um uh, uh, with regard to uh, Venezuela's state-run oil oil company and uh, uh, I don't know, the uh, Boast's cat. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, and is um, you know, they you know, they just didn't invest where 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 they could have, and you know that allows the U.S. to play games with the price of oil because like Saudi and them can you know uh, uh, you know because they can still make money off of a lower price because they've got uh, you know more advanced refineries and stuff. But I mean, like it, it's also just not quite that simple. Like I mean, you know, um, uh, Saudi having you know that ability that like they control themselves, like that is like a that, that's also like a function of their very unique privileged place in you know in the web of empire and so you know like you can't necessarily like assume that you know you're you're going to get that kind of uh infrastructure around your natural resources um uh if you know you're just a you know if you're an imperial vassal state yeah well and it's it's interesting right because uh certainly the u.s was hostile to the chilean revolution but um you know, this this ghost ship uh, was unable to sell copper to any of the uh, advanced capitalist countries. So, like, you know, even France, which loved to give the finger to the U.S., would not take it. Uh, so these these countries that, you know, or or, or Canada, right? uh gave the finger to the US on, on uh Cuba um still wouldn't take it so it's it's like there may be uh apparent divisions within the advanced capitalist countries but when it comes to a question like this they all just close ranks um all right uh Jake go ahead yeah i was going to bring up the venezuela thing because of that like i seen a couple headlines recently about a ship that's been like stranded off the not stranded but like forced to stay just off the coast of venezuela and like not allowed to go in and, and drop off the oil because of the u.s blockade and yeah that sort of idea of like you know there's a major export that in when capitalists were were running the exporting was able to make a lot of money and then once they're, you know, the system gets threatened and once, yeah, exactly. Um, once, uh, you know, there's an actual possibility of a socialist country succeeding, you know, that they, they pull out all the stops and it doesn't really matter whether or not that resource would be useful to any capitalist. It's about, you know, this is, this is when it becomes more about the principles than about making money, right? When it's, when it's about, uh, whether there can be an, a, an example of successful socialism, which they don't want to allow. Um, and yeah, so it's like, you know, it's easy to sort of say in hindsight, like, well, yeah, they should have diversified. But then it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How the, would they even have been able to do that? You could, you could, I'm sure you could make arguments for either, but it's, it's, it's certainly much more complicated than, than just saying like, well, invest in other things because, you know, they would have, they would have boycotted or prevented those things from being exported too. You know, it's not about like the particular commodity. It's, it's about the, the fact that the global economy is capitalist, right? It's, and to participate in that economy as a socialist country is kind of not really possible. I mean, it was somewhat possible when, you know, the Soviet Union was existing and there was this, this big block of socialist countries that were accepting or more accepting rather of, kind of this this global trade still in a sense in a capital in kind of capitalist relations like a world market but like once that 
once that's gone, I mean, like there's, there's nothing now. And, and it just really shows the, uh, the need for ultimately like we need a world revolution, right? We can't just rely on one country to succeed, uh, in overthrowing their, their government and, and creating socialism. It's like, well, then they're going to be starved by the rest of the world. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you know, if, if, if there was some semblance of worker power in some other country where even if that country is capitalist and they're able to force, force trade, you know, maybe that's some, some kind of way forward there. But again, it, it requires like the people in that country, the working class in that country to be organized. And certainly we're not at that level yet, but, but it, it really just belies the need for that kind of thing. Ultimately, like we can't, we can't take these baby steps. I mean, we, you know, they'll take steps, but we can't just like, can't stop at one country. Uh, and we have to yeah. Well, and another interesting thing about this example is like, they're basically trying to follow the Ricardian theory of comparative advantage, right? Like they're like, okay, well, we uh, are best at producing copper. So let's invest in copper. And then it's like, oh no, now you're pigeonholed and uh you're extremely vulnerable to <laughs> being shut down <laughs> by people refusing to buy your copper uh so it actually you know the 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 a comparative advantage approach actually makes you more vulnerable strategically even if it can get you greater foreign exchange uh assuming you know an open market um Okay, uh, and then there's other problems with that, too, in terms of, like, getting locked into lower yield uh, industries or um, being put into a place of uh, food dependence because of selling cash crops, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, all right, Boast, go ahead, and then Shane. Yeah, I uh, I really love this section because it kind of speaks to this uh, persistent paradox that I mean it's nice that even like beer encountered where you have uh, capitalists operating on the short term where they weaponize neglect to just smash and grab extract as much surplus value as possible but then when once you socialize things you essentially crank up the difficulty to the hardest possible difficulty because you have this it, almost eternal now that you have to deal with um, and literally the ecological crisis just jumped out of the page and smacked me in the face when I was reading through this. Because uh, I'm not a good economist, I just happen to do some of it in school. Um, but whenever I hear people talk about it, I, talk, I hear people talk about it in these economic forecasts where it's like, if we do stuff now, is it going to pay off? Or are we going to see these returns at some point? And it just kind of speaks to how uh, toxic that, that way of like envisioning things is. It's like you either have to deal with all of the consequences or you have to realize that, you know, whatever your presence is in this area is just going to be, uh, you know, destructive um, while you're getting all that surplus value out until the wizard the you know the rivers are acidified and the trees are all cut down right right um for sure and uh shane go ahead yeah this this is all just so um reminiscent of like mike mcnair's argument in revolutionary strategy for the strategy of patience and at a minimum getting a continental majority um so this you know, I mean, this this whole uh, Chilean affair is just that whole, yeah, like socialism in one country, it can't work really. I mean, it doesn't work if you do it the hard way. It doesn't work if you do it the nice way uh, or whatever, you know. Um, you kind of need a kind of, yeah, I think, I think McNair's on the right track thinking like a continent-sized block um, that is more or less self-sufficient. 
Um, that's probably going to be even harder these days because, like, let's say if, even if Latin America went went all in with a, a really serious, like, you know, strategy of patience, continental majority, where are you getting the, like, rare, rare earth metals and the tritium and all this weird shit that you need to build microprocessors? You know, um, nobody's going to sell them to you um, and so on. So I, I, I think this, this thing about, like, even just the getting raw resources alone um, is very tricky and it, it seems to have gotten trickier. Um, like maybe when you rewind the tape back to 1910 or whatever, it's like, okay, what, what do people trade internationally? Like turnips? Okay, fine. We can just fucking grow those here. There's no, we don't, we don't need the Dutch to give us turnips, but you kind of need the microprocessors these days. Mm, worth reflecting on. Well, at least they'd have the lithium. I think the, the, Next largest deposit yeah, of lithium is in Afghanistan. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, the pretty hard the to extract. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, all right. So uh, let's let's move on here. Um, so record pressing company was on strike. You know, couldn't. <laughs> The president couldn't get any records to give to the members of the UN. Um, uh, or rather, uh, you know, this is a case probably where you would uh, want uh, the higher levels of the system to intervene and say, look, you know, we appreciate that your system one concerns are valid and, you know, you probably have a good reason to be on strike. On the other hand, the country really needs you to press those records because no one else can do it. Uh, um, all right. So the Checo team had built a preliminary model of inflation, as mentioned, and we wanted to understand through this the nature and the risk of hyperinflation. It was argued in textbooks, remember that the date was 1972, that monetarist policies could hold such a situation. Therefore, I made a systems theoretic model of monetarist economic regulation, checked it through with a leading British economist prominent in support of this approach, and tried to use it in the context of the Checo work. The cybernetics of monetarism seem totally inimical to the cybernetics of a free society as the Chilean experiment had defined it or as I would define it anywhere else today, because the regulatory tool embodies a model of what must be regulated that denies variety proliferation in pursuit of adaptation and evolution to any changing economy. Remembering the cybernetic theorem that declares a regulator to be effective only insofar as its model of what, it is, regula of what is regulated is adequate, we see monetarism a diminution in variety uh, we see in monetarism a diminution in variety of the real economic world entailed by a regulatory model that cannot encompass more. Only variety can absorb variety. Ashby's law can be met either by expanding regulatory variety to absorb evolutionary variety or by curbing evolutionary learning until variety in the economy matches the regulatory variety disposed by the only regulator, the money supply, that the ideology of the status quo is prepared to acknowledge. Having come to this conclusion, 
I intensified the search for novel and evolutionary activity whereby the Chilean economy might very rapidly enhance its foreign earnings. Of course, this meant looking for national assets other than copper. Of course, moreover, diversification had been a major concern in Chile for many years. Even so, I identified three possibilities in which there seemed reason to hope. The first was skilled artisan labor. There seemed likely to be an expanding market in the first world, aching under the dull uniformity and plastic gim gimcrackery of its domestic architecture and design for handcrafted products, especially those that draw on so rich a heritage of symbolism, texture, and color. The second was wine. Chile produces vast amounts of wine and drinks most of the best of it, exporting only the cheapest in relatively small quantities. In fact, the best Chilean wine is excellent. There is an advanced onological, yeah, onological institute and a general belief that Chilean vines, originally from France, were the only vines in the world to escape altogether the phylorexa, phylorexa epidemic of the late 19th century. The third natural asset was 3,000 miles of coastline and the fish in those seas, notably anchovies. Uh, so let's let's talk about this. Uh, initially trying to um, examine the economy through monetarism uh, and Beer's critique of monetarism as like, well, what it's going to do is reduce the economy to the level of variety embodied in this really simple economic model that only looks at the money supply. Uh, and then this idea of uh, diversification. Okay. No, no comments there. Let's move on with the, with, uh, let's move on with the, uh, the rest of this. So with the help of others in the core group, appropriate contacts were made with government people in all three areas. It was difficult to quantify the possibilities for mobilizing artisans, but there were soon hard facts and practical possibilities with which to clothe the other two skeletal ideas. Moreover, it emerged that there was a sizable mountain of pig iron available for immediate export. I returned to Europe armed with these dossiers and with the promise that two authorized negotiators for the minister could be called into the situation at any time. It so happened that during this period, I was a partner, one of five, in a consortium, now disbanded, which had the aim of facilitating major international enterprise. The other four partners listed an international jurist, a physicist, an ex-diplomat, a foreign banker, and a well-known professor of economics. Hopefully not the same one who promoted monetarism to beer. Um... <laughs> All the partners had strong connections worldwide in their own fields, and the plan, which proved to be very far ahead of its time, was to seek synergistic developments in large-scale projects of all the expert inputs that would be required. It seemed that the fisheries project offered an ideal prospect for the intervention of this partnership. Thus, while I was hawking pig iron and discovering that the steel industry cartel across Europe was yet more powerful than when I had left the industry 12 years earlier, uh, which I guess is the, the, the basis or the, the origin of the EU, um, and also trying to establish that a wine market existed in Britain for a medium-priced product, 
there is a sizable gap in quality and price between Chateau Planck and the Appellation Contrôlé, for which a Chilean wine could have been tailored. Uh, my partners were considering fish. The Japanese were already fishing these waters from very powerful vessels to the chagrin of Chilean fishermen, who accused the Japanese of poaching inside territorial limits. Our idea was to hire large factory ships, which would produce fish meal continuously at sea. No delays here, such ships seemed to be available at a price, and no shore stations would be required. The product would probably be sold to the Chinese Republic, which is Taiwan. Um, there would be legal and uh, political problems back in Chile, but the two negotiators were confident of handling those. None of these plans was to mature, and it is impossible to prove exactly what went, what went wrong, because at all times the negotiation space was thick with unreal demands and feeble excuses. My own considered judgment, with hindsight, is that the deployment of a large piece of capitalistic economic machinery in support of an avowedly neo-socialist cause is basically untenable as a proposition to both sides, even though each can provide a rationale for reaching agreement. Note the expression neo-socialist. This analysis would not apply to East-West trade agreements, which are basically capitalistic in each direction. I have already reported President Allende's words to me. How can a small socialist state continue to exist in a capitalist milieu? Of course it cannot without very powerful support, as Cuba had, and Chile had not. By the end of this epoch, another coup d'etat was attempted. The president later called it the September plot. There was much unease. There was a sense that irresistible forces from outside the country would use whatever sympathetic internal interests they could find to bring the government down. Even so, the coup was overcome, and the commander-in-chief again pledged the loyalty of the armed forces. All right, uh, Shane, go ahead. I love how Beer like basically summarizes the entirety of transforming technology in like a half a paragraph. <laughs> it's just like, no, yeah, this 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 economic machinery can't be just used for this purpose. And also, like you know, the Soviet Union's interaction with the rest of the world was basically capitalistic anyway. It converged on capitalism. It's just like, yeah, Feenberg.jpg. <laughs> it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think what he's saying there. Like, mm -hmm. it, it's, I guess he's essentially saying, like, the capitalists are going to be skeptical about the returns they'll get from selling this means of production, mm -hmm. you know, these factory ships. And the socialists are not going to be willing to make promises about hyper-exploiting the workers on these ships. So essentially, the buyer and seller can't come to agreement about this piece of technology because the socialists are using it for different ends than it was intended, and the capitalists mm -hmm. want it to be used for the means that it, or sorry, the ends that it was intended for. Right. Like uh, it was like, yeah. you know, factory ships should produce the maximum, the maximum possible surplus value, because that's what we built it for. So mm -hmm. that's what we want to sell it for. Um, I guess there's also like a lot of, um, again, like McNair's thing here of like you end up playing the game, right? Like you, you do competition 
like with this kind of national revolution, you you play the enemy's game by the enemy's rules. Like you're you're kind of bound into this competitive, capitalistic kind of calculation. Um, yeah. Even even at this level where you're trying to bootstrap yourself into self sufficiency. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's like if you look at the the Russian Revolution, they had similar troubles of like even trying to get the capitalists to build a factory and exploit their workers. You know. Like it was, it mm-hmm. was difficult. Um, even trying to play by capitalist rules, they, they, it was really hard for them to make any headway there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a major, major problem. Um, and I guess you saying like, yeah, neo-socialist in the sense, like, I mean, what the USSR was selling on the international market was, pretty much oil right i mean vacuum tubes it's a big one vacuum um, tubes all right yeah even uh in 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 um guitar circles the the the, the most revered vacuum tubes the 12ax7 specifically mm-hmm. um are, are soft tech and people people love finding just boxes of those fucking things lying around it's like the old soft tech valves so obviously they're not fucking made anymore but like um yeah they were they were legendary You'd you'd have like um, artists in the the states or or the UK or whatever mm-hmm. pulling out the valves and their fucking Marshall amps and stuff and their Vox amps and replacing them with Softec ones. They were they were really sought after. Um, but yeah, that that and oil, right? <laughs> they weren't selling very much else. Uh, my my mom owned a Lada, uh, so uh... Ooh, interesting. No <laughs> <laughs> fun. <laughs> I can't say it was very mm. good, but you know, some people, I guess, bought them as a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's yeah. Uh, anyway, I I think like it, it's it's not like the USSR was interacting with the world capitalist economy on a highly diversified basis. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was pretty much doing the same thing that Canada does and selling mm. for the most part raw resources well the, the thing that really yeah i keep coming back to this mcnair thing here but like you know the, the this problem of like international supply chains and stuff has only gotten worse yeah um and this 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 is going to be an even harder problem and i think it, it makes the the kind of general mcnairist thrust of, of just the whole continental majority stuff like you have, you have to aim for a, a rising tide that covers the whole continent at, at a minimum Mm-hmm. I think that's that's even more relevant. Like, and it, even reflecting on this now, uh, with this chapter, and the, the the problems they had of just just flogging fucking big iron and like getting getting fish going, ah, that's that's so much worse today. Um, yeah, wow, crazy problem. Especially because all the fisheries are depleted. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, let's go to boast, and then Jeremy, and then Matt. Yeah, just uh, more comments on uh, ecological crisis. Uh, There was a particularly good article that I guess was written a little while ago at this point, but it was called Between the Devil and the Green New Deal. And it always kind of stuck with me because it really dug into the, you know, high tech machinery that we would love to have to offset the ecological crisis and how it is itself ecologically destructive. And this is not like windmills killing birds or whatever, but this is like rare earth minerals having to be extracted out of the ground and then transported across the earth and how... I mean, I feel like you kind of have two options. There's like the easy route where you just, you know, you do the capitalist stuff, you accept you're going to be evil and you're like, well, we're going to, 
we, we have to. Um, then there's the more noble hard road where you're just like, well, how can we get along without the same considerations for technology? Like, how can we think, quote unquote, cybernetically and achieve the same technological advancement without necessarily having the same number of circuit boards, which is, you know, speaking straight out of Beer's brain. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's definitely going to require a lot of adaptation. Um and I think there's probably numerous sectors where waste could be reduced um, just by, like, slowing down product cycles. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, there's certain things that really do need to change, like international shipping definitely needs to be put on a new technological basis. And... Getting stuff like rare earth metals, well, there needs to be a completely new arrangement negotiated with suppliers, um, which is going to, you know, increase expenses all across the entire supply chain, right? So it's, yeah, I, I feel like it's not insurmountable. Uh, there's probably a lot of, of, of fat that we could cut because it's... I mean, look, like, there's just so much waste in the electronic sector in the form of, like, annual uh, product line refreshes and stuff. Like, it, that just doesn't need to be happening. Um, yeah. It might not be insurmountable, but currently it is insurmisable because we just, we can't think of it. We can't see it. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this conversation makes me think there's a bread tuber, Luna Oi, who uh, is a Vietnamese communist. And someone asked her in one of the Q of A's, like, why isn't Vietnam like a perfect communist society? And she was like, we spent 30 years in a war of national liberation that killed millions of our people. The U.S. dropped more bombs on us than they dropped on Western Europe in World War II completely destroyed our infrastructure. Then we were dragged into the Cambodian Civil War, and then we fought with China. And the end result was we ended up being in debt so badly that we had to go to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to get to a level where our people weren't just dying all the time. And now we're horribly in debt. And so we are trying to go through this experience as communistly as possible, but we're in a really terrible situation because we live on planet Earth that's dominated by capitalist forces right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of like if you go through, uh, if you take the route that uh, Chile did not take and mm -hmm. actually fight the forces of capitalism in a war um it does set you back even more i mean the worst example of that in a sense is haiti right that just like it, it's it like it has never even slightly recovered uh after being crushed um well getting its independence and then being put into debt peonage for the rest of its existence um and and constantly sub subject to political interference um and and just massive ecological degradation um 
Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I'm also a fan of Luna. Um, yeah, um, it's it's also interesting, uh, you know, to see someone who like grew up in it, you know, and being kind of chill about it, you know, versus like, you know, I used to love like converts to like, you know, um, religions, you know, being a lot, you know, nuttier than people who you know grew up in them. You know, it's a little what they're doing in Vietnam seems like it makes a lot of sense actually. Um, and yeah, well, like I think people I've heard it called a Samsung Republican. Yeah, like that's not exactly fair because you know they. Actually do have like a very robust like social democratic infrastructure like they didn't uh, they didn't do the you know china got rid of the iron rice bowl well like i mean yeah like they actually are worse off than uh, uh play a lot of places in western europe actually but uh yeah i mean vietnam's pretty interesting also in terms of like uh, stuff to watch i mean uh egypt you know um uh, elected like um a socialist government in like 2018 they're doing a lot of cool stuff and like i feel like they, they could actually do autarky because like all like the really high capital goods that like you know you need global supply chains for generally like they have uh they actually have like they have a uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing they have chemical manufacturing they have uh, um uh they even have chip fabs which is like you know there's only a couple of countries that even have those um uh, uh they've got a domestic aircraft industry and uh yeah they've also got the Suez canal which uh you know it puts them in kind of a unique situation um uh, uh that i mean yeah egypt's cool and uh yeah there's, there's a lot of countries in africa that, that are also still you know um nominally socialist and effectively socialist to, to one degree or another um uh, uh which yeah that, that, that's that's yeah that, that, that's pretty cool um uh, um right uh yeah I, I mean i think autarky should really be a last ditch option because uh even if you have those things it tends to lead to uh stagnation um which is ultimately gonna uh undermine what you're doing uh again I, that continental strategy is gonna be hopefully more effective uh if a global one is not available but yeah i mean I guess in some cases it's it's maybe unavoidable. Um, obviously, Vietnam hasn't pursued that because it's become another um, another. Well, it's be it's become a place to undercut uh, undercut Chinese wages um, uh, because you know labor in China was getting too expensive, so they had to move somewhere else. Uh, Vietnam was next door and had a similarly stable uh, state structure. So, uh, uh, that has, um, I mean, I guess put Vietnam in probably a similar sort of, uh, dilemma, uh, that you would find in China about your dependence on international exports, uh, and manufacturing, but at the same time, the benefit of improving science and technology in the country. Anyway, uh, let's, um... I guess wrap this up, this discussion up. We're finished uh, this chapter, uh, so we're going to move on to chapter eighteen next time, uh, and that is the October watershed. Uh, so I think this is you know moving further into the crisis. Uh, and what actions were taken. It's not quite uh, as long of a chapter, uh, but, you know, we might do it in two or three sessions. We'll see. <laughs> uh, 
uh but yeah that's kind of dreamer kyle <laughs> yeah <laughs> two or three apparently <laughs> we'll see we'll see uh but yeah i'll uh, see you next time for chapter 18 um and, see you next time uh yeah thanks for participating everyone bye bye, bye. y'all bye